I would love for you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. And, of course, as always, the sermon notes in your bulletin I know will be a big help to you along the way. would like to help us head into our time in God's Word this morning by reading a section from the first chapter of this cool book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. It's an oldie but a goodie. And of course, I know there are newer versions out, and this dates me. Old man is what that says, because I've got better ones. But this is, you know, kind of the original. So there you go. Well, Knowing God, that's the name of the book, and it's the point, of course. But I want to, I want to read a couple of paragraphs from the beginning. So this will help us, I think, in where we're going today. Packer writes this. On January 7th, 1855, the minister of New Park Street Chapel, Southwark, England, I believe, opened his morning sermon as follows. It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect, that is, believers, followers of Jesus, is God. The proper study of the Christian is the Godhead, of course, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. Then there are several paragraphs where he talks about how the study of God improves your mind, humbles your mind, expands it, and brings consolation. Now on that, he says, there is, in contemplating Christ, a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Spirit, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief. So speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. It is to that subject that I invite you this morning. Imagine. So begin that sermon on that first day in January by 20-year-old Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Can you imagine? And he then led that group into a study of God. And that is where we're going today, too. And not only today, but in the weeks ahead. Today... Uh, In our study of Isaiah, and of course we're moving through all 66 books, sorry, 66 chapters. We'll get around to the other uh, books in due time. But 66 chapters of Isaiah, we're working our way through this, and we're coming to a big shift here that we'll define in a moment. But it's a study of God. And as I will suggest to you today, a correct view of God is essential to your Christian life and how you interact with him, how you live before him. And so we want to talk about that today. I'd like to pray for us that God would help us, and then we will step right in here to 
Isaiah chapter 40, but pray with me if you would, please. Father, thank you so much for the privilege that we have of opening the Word of God together. In these changing and difficult days in particular, not only on a personal level, but certainly a national level and international level, uh, we so need to hear a word from the living God. And so I pray that you would do that today through this chapter of the written Word of God, inerrant, infallible, your word to us today. Would you help us as we give attention to this text? Speak to us about the issues here or about other elements that you may want to talk to us about today as the Spirit of God prompts us. We come before you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So I mentioned a a big shift that's taking place here. Indeed, uh, the first 39 chapters as we have worked through them uh, are about the nation of Israel, uh, Assyria, of course, the world power on the rise, conflict between nations, and in particular, we have seen a lot about God's judgment of the nations, including his own people, Israel, all right? Israel divided at the time, of course, but we've seen God's discipline of them. And now, after all of that, last week, four chapters with Pastor Tyler, Movement of the Nations, King Hezekiah, the, the mood shifts, the voice shifts. We'll talk about that more specifically in a moment, but, but there's, there, there's a move from words of, of, of confrontation to words of comfort. I find it very, very, very helpful. This feels really good today. I cannot imagine a time when I don't want to hear comfort. Oh, comfort my people, says the Lord. I want that. And I imagine I, as as well as you, need need to hear those words of comfort today. Uh, But we're going to be comforted as we think about God, what he is like, his power, his nearness, all of those things. Now, there are, there's a big discussion, of course, about the book of Isaiah. Some of you are familiar with this, that right at this juncture, 39 to 40, there are some who look at the different language and tone and say this had to be written by a, another guy, you know, Deutero-Isaiah, or in some people's minds, a third Isaiah contributed to this 66-chapter book that we have. I, I, I personally am not persuaded by those. I am not in that big discussion and don't intend to go there today. But to those of you who are aware of it, I want you to know that I'm aware of it too. Uh, and, and to feed that, um, I suppose I would say these two things in my contribution, however helpful or not. Um, it is not surprising to me that there would be a different vocabulary because in both of these, you, if you have the same person speaking, if the first 39 chapters are kind of like a funeral and the next section is kind of like a wedding. Uh, there's a different voice that's used, isn't there? I use different vocabulary and a different tone in those two different settings. And I think that that's true here. And also, I think it's, it's at least helpful to the discussion to note that in the Dead Sea Scrolls, some of you are familiar with some of these things from archaeology, um, down by the Dead Sea uh, in the 1940s, 47, 48, and on into the 50s, a Bedouin shepherd uh, discovered some old clay pots with old scrolls in them. Those were discovered more um, uh, different caves and so on, but those, those scrolls were put there in the first century. So they're discovered in the 1940s, so a big period of time in between. And if you go back to the great scroll of Isaiah that was found in one of the caves uh, there by the Dead Sea, you will find in the scroll of Isaiah a, a, a seamless moving from Isaiah 39 into chapter 40 with no break. 
that would suggest, and then we're going to hear from this guy. It's, it's a seamless movement from 39 to 40. And so in, in the, the first century, they did not feel a need to address such things that people do today. Okay, uh, that's my contribution to that part in the, the academy, they say. And I bet you didn't stay up last night wondering about that. So we'll get into chapter 40, but I wanted to at least acknowledge that as a, as a, a matter of discussion for some. This morning, I want to look at chapter 40 in three different movements, and you see those laid out for you on your sermon notes, verses 1 to 11, 12 to 26, and then 27 to 31, all with a, a, a title to them that begin with the two words, God comforts, God comforts. And so that, that will be our theme throughout the morning as we see this truth about God. How does he comfort? With what does he comfort his people? What truths does he bring? What does he tell us about himself as he brings his comfort So I want to do that, first of all, by reading verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read each section right as we deal with it, rather than all of it at once. So let's look then to the Word of God and hear from him. Isaiah 40, 1 through 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. And we will stop here. So God then bringing comfort to his people. Now, uh, several bullet points there on your sermon notes that I hope you have in front of you. Some see chapter 40 as kind of like an introduction, a prologue or an overture to the next Uh, section, the rest of Isaiah, because it introduces similar themes. Week upon week now, we are going to be looking at this theme of the greatness of God from a number of different angles. We'll see him in his greatness as as a being. We'll see him in his greatness in redemption and his greatness in what he will accomplish in the future. So there are different aspects of the greatness of God that we'll consider together. But chapter 40 is kind of like uh, an introduction to all of that. 
And so the comfort of God is what, is what is going to be prepared for us. Now, the fact that God is doing this, that is, speaking words of comfort, teaches us something about God's discipline of his children. And what I mean by that is this. In the past chapters, we have seen God's movement among the nations, certainly, and we have seen him dealing in discipline or judgment even of his people, not only foreign nations who worship false gods, but even of his own people. But it's interesting to notice that here, as God speaks words of comfort, it's evident that God did not intend to ruin his people when he disciplined them. His, his discipline was for their good, not for their, for their, uh, to wipe them out, you understand. So here then, after that season of discipline and judgment takes place, God now comes and says, comfort, be comforted. And so there's a shift of mood, but it speaks something about his purposes. Now, verses 1 and 2, I I think, introduce the rest of the chapter. Some would see here a fourth voice. I mentioned three. Uh, But some would see here a fourth voice, though the term is not used, so I did not use it either. But this beginning of comfort, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. Now, this word is is an urgent word. It speaks of a, like you're hollering to somebody who is in despair. You're speaking directly. You're speaking strongly. You're you're saying, don't quit. Don't give up. Even if you've been under this disciplining hand of God, no, you're going to cry out to that person. You're interrupting their despair and saying, no, 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 God is not done with you. Your warfare has ended. It's now now a change. And your, your iniquity has been pardoned. Double, it's been fully paid. I I would say I I find here uh, a a similar tone when you think New Testament, okay? I find a similar tone to these first two verses that you find, especially in Romans 8, verse 1. Here's what I mean by that. The book of Romans begins, as you know, the first few chapters with layer upon layer of, of pointing out our sinfulness, every one of us. And so Paul begins with one group and moves to another, moves to another. And by the time you're, he's done, every one of us, it says, has our mouth shut and we're guilty before God. Then he leads us to Jesus, the one who died on the cross for our sin, paid our, our debt in full. And you come to chapter 8, where Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. See? Those who are in Christ. And so here, it's looking back and seeing God's disciplining hand and so on. But now, no, the war is ended. And of course, we can be forgiven, not because we've done something cool or amazing. It's all because of the work of Jesus, isn't it? His death on the cross in our, in our place. And so here, when Paul, or sorry, when Isaiah, by God's inspiration, speaks here of the iniquity being pardoned, receiving from the Lord's hand, double, it's paid in full. That season is now over. And so it's a time for comfort, comfort coming to God's people. Now, the three voices, I want to just look at these briefly with you. There's a voice mentioned in verse 3, a voice mentioned in verse 6, and a voice mentioned in verse 9. And so they move along, and I think they're they're logical in order, and they point us to Jesus. I think this is New Testament right here in, in the, on the pages of the Old Testament. So this first voice then uh, points us to John the Baptist. I want to say this textually. Um, as I read, I'm reading the ESV. Some of you have different Bibles, and you will have heard me read it different. 
I'm just wanting to note the difference. For example, uh, verse 3 begins, a voice cries, colon. You see that in the ESV, if that's what you have. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Some of your Bibles uh, would more traditionally say, a voice cries out in the wilderness, comma, prepare the way of the Lord. So the issue in terms of translation is where does the phrase in the wilderness belong? Does it belong to the voice or to the way? So when you think John the Baptist, is it describing where John lived in the wilderness or is it describing those that he is addressing? They live in a wilderness. So there's a discussion about that and it's reflected in Bible translations. Not to worry, not to worry. No meaning has been changed in the translation of this text. So it's okay. Uh, You can have your favorite view, but I just read the ESV and emphasized it that way. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, appeal to this text to say this, this text in Isaiah is about John the Baptist. All four Gospels. John's Gospel uh, has, has John the Baptist quoting this text. I am that. I am the voice crying out. So John the Baptist says this of himself. So I think with the witness of those four, John, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I think we could say pretty accurately that Isaiah is looking ahead here to the ministry of John the Baptist because we were told four times. One would do it, but four is even better, I guess. Now, John's mission then was to prepare the way for Jesus to come. And the, the figure of speech here really makes sense to us, if you think about it. Every valley lifted up, mountain and hill made low, uh, even, uneven ground made uh, level. This, even back in the old days, this is referring to uh, the practice that if some king was going to come, some famous important person was going to come to your town, you fix the potholes. It's it's not remarkable. Like, hey, the president's coming. You want to fix Main Street? Sure. Yeah, I guess so. So they go out there with their ground screw and fix Main Street. Well, in the old days, it wasn't, of course, quite like that. But they, they, if somebody was coming, they might send some guys out and say, you know, put away the trash. And if you can, you know, make the road better so his chariot or whatever the deal is, you know, they don't get car sick or something. So they would do this. If you had enough time, you'd fix the road. Similar to what you and I experience. If you've ever driven cross-country, and you look at our modern highway system, and there are places you drive, you can tell somebody with a big bulldozer spent weeks chopping this mountain in half just for you, so you didn't have to go up and over. It's amazing. Or over the big gully, there's a big span, isn't there? A big bridge that, that is there so that you don't have to you know, go all the way down and work your... That was nice of them. Well, so we understand the analogy. That was the work of John the Baptist, to say, there's one coming after me greater, greater than I. And man, get ready, get ready. So that was John's work. Now, that's verses 3, 4, and 5. I think the work of John the Baptist. Now, this is taking place. You remember, now track with me here. This is written about 750 years in round historical numbers before John the Baptist would have shown up. 750 years is a, well, that's a pretty long time. Not in geological terms, but in terms of my life, uh, what, was, what was here 750 years ago? Well, how about none of us? None of us and none of your stuff wasn't here 750 years ago. Uh, human life was pretty different 750 years ago. Long enough for people to begin to say, is God really going to do that? Who's this guy crying in the wilderness? I haven't seen anybody out there. I haven't seen anybody say, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, you remember, we saw this in Luke's gospel. There were some who still believed weren't there. So when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus 
into the temple. Here's aged Simeon waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's one who still believed 750 years later that God was going to keep his word. Here's Anna, a prophetess, who's been there for a long, long time. And she still believes God is going to keep his promise. So I think this is very interesting. The way these paragraphs lay out the first uh, section, the first voice, John the Baptist. Now look at what follows. What is this? Six, seven, and eight. A voice says, cry. Well, he says, what, what should I say? Here it is. All flesh is like grass. It's beauty like the flower of the grass. It's talking about the fading nature, even of the beautiful things that we have. Now, if you read this, of course, you see the punchline in verse eight. The word of our God will stand forever. You, you, this is probably familiar to you. If you've read the New Testament, you know, Peter uh, addresses the same text. He quotes this text in first Peter one, and he's making the same point by it. Specifically, it may be 750 years since, uh, since Isaiah wrote this, but guess what? God keeps his word. Every one of them. So when people today, as they look at the movements of the nations, and we look again at war on the other side of the planet, right over there, and people get concerned, rightly, I understand it, and wonder if we should study the book of Revelation, how many times have I been sick? Been, we should study the book of Revelation. Well, okay, maybe, or maybe we should study God. That's a thought because he holds it all in his hand. And I just want to remind us, whatever goes on in this world, whether it's an illness or whether it's nation rising against nation like Jesus kind of said, didn't he? In the Olivet Discourse, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, right? He kind of told us this was going to happen. But listen, every word of the living God will play out exactly as he intends. You can take that to the bank. You notice God does not call for a, um, a notary. Nothing against notaries. He is his own. He is his own notary. And so he can say, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever, period. Done. Because I said so. And he'll keep it. Now, as it flows in the text, John the Baptist is foretold. Then there's this waiting and a reminder that only God can be trusted. All the rest of us are coming and going like flowers. This recent uh, season, when we have remembered a number of people's lives and, and done so in memorial services and gravesides, what happens to the flowers in a week, two weeks? Yeah, they, they, they do this, don't they? Cut flowers? Within a week, their beauty fades. Better water it, and even then, do everything you can. In a week, two weeks, you will be reminded that that flower was beautiful for a time and fades. You'll see played out in those beautiful flowers what you just thought about with the person you're remembering. Grass withers, flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. Ah, oh, wow. So, so I think verses six through eight serve that purpose of saying, here's this promise and here's this moment. God will keep his word. Now look what happens next. Verses nine uh, and following. This third voice now speaking. Zion and Jerusalem are called upon to speak, to be bearers of good news. And what are they to say? Well, verse 9, here it is. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. And to read this text, one would rightly say, Isaiah, if you're in the Old Testament, you'd say, Isaiah, in what way will the Lord God come? 
What do you mean he comes? Do you mean in future judgment? Do you, do you mean in fire? Do you mean, what do you mean the Lord God comes with might? And who is this in verse 11, who will tend his flock like a shepherd and gather the lambs in his arms? About whom are we speaking? How does the great and awesome God come near? Wow. And you quickly know, having read the New Testament, this is the gospel of John, isn't it? And the word became flesh, verse 14, John 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten son of God. Only begotten God. And then you go to verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. No one has seen the full expression of God at any time. The only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, he has declared or exegeted or revealed him. That's talking about Jesus. So behold your God. I see in verses 9, 10, and 11 a description of the coming of Jesus. So I see John the Baptist. I see a promise that God will keep his word. And I see a a looking ahead to Jesus who will come, who as John 10 tells us, he will lead his flock like a shepherd. The good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. John 10, Jesus, no one can snatch them out of my hand. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. Yes, he will. This one who comes, God in the flesh. I think that's what these three voices are speaking about. Behold your God. How do I behold him? Well, most clearly in the person of Jesus. Um, last fall, sometime, we, we gave you a whole bunch of these books. Gentle and lowly, like 150 of them went out in our congregation. We said one per family. I won't ask for a show of hands. When you get books, you should read them. Okay? Read them or give them back. Okay. Well, if, if you've read it and you're done, bring it back and put it out. Somebody else who didn't get one should read it. This is a really good book. It's called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. Can you imagine? Uh, I've had a number of people who've read it, as, as did I, who said that did good for my soul. It did. I've read a few books. And that one, that one uh, was a good one. It, it spoke to me in a number of chapters. I said, thank you, Lord, for that. Um, so so this, these are things we should do. God comforts his people. God comforts his people as he comes near. I'm going to shift to verses 12 to 26, this next heading here. God comforts us with his greatness and his power. All right? God comforts us with his greatness and his power. So I go to chapter 40, starting verse 12. Oh, the first bullet point before I read. Sorry. I want you to watch for this as I read. Okay? This, this section, 12 through 26, divides into two parts that are parallel to one another. So watch for this. Each of the two sections, 12 through 20 and 21 to 26, they begin with a series of rhetorical questions to get you thinking. Okay? Then there is a teaching portion. And as I then see right, right next to each other in my Bible, verse 18 and verse 25, those are in the different sections, but they say kind of the same thing. And they emphasize the point. To whom then will you liken God? And then 25, to whom then will you liken me? So he's making a teaching point here. So the two sections, watch for the parallel structure in those two parts. All right? It's kind of interesting to see. And so we read verse 12. Questions. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in the balance? Who's done that? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult 
And who made him understand? That is, his, when's the last time God called you up for advice? Anybody? Anybody at all? Right. No. That's the question here. Anybody do that? Who taught him the, the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol. I almost think it should be a question mark. Mine has an exclamation mark. An idol? He's saying, seriously? A craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished, you can't afford that, he says, for an offering. He, He chooses wood that will not rot. Seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. He's saying, can you imagine this? Wow, somebody's worshiping an idol. So there's section one here. Now he begins then. Round number two, so to speak. Questions. Do you not know? Did you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not One is missing. He's looking to the sky now. Okay, those two sections in, God's greatness and his power. The rhetorical questions, of course, uh, are answered by obvious responses. Who's done that? Well, not you. The the pictures are striking, though. Scientists tell us uh, that the earth is covered with 70% water. Oceans, rivers, lakes, mountain, hidden mountain lakes, 70% water. And here it says, who holds the waters in the hollow of his hand? Can you imagine that? If you were to empty a small mountain lake with a bucket, you'd be at it for a long time. And here God is described as big enough to hold all the waters in the hollow of his hand, who marks off the heavens with a span. We talk about millions of light years in the known universe. Light year upon light year. And here it says God measures them with the span that would be the width of your hand. He goes, okay, one, two. Can you imagine God big enough to mark the universe, so to speak, with his hand, who weighs the mountains? We, we struggle to climb them. God, it says, weighs them. He knows how much Mount Everest weighs. He knows what Mount Rainier weighs we can barely get to the top. Well, some of you have. I wouldn't suggest it. The nations are like a drop in a bucket, accounted as dust on the scales. Imagine. The old-fashioned scale where if you went into a store and asked to buy, you know, two pounds of sugar, you want to make sure you get all your money out of it, so you 
have them clean the scale first. So he says the nations are like, those are the nations. Oh, powerful, right? Real powerful, big leaders. Row upon row of tanks and missiles. Oh, we pay attention. But before Almighty God, he can wipe them away in a moment. Don't doubt it. Don't doubt it. There's not a nation that stands as a rival to God. Not one. So yes, we pay attention, or we do, but we don't tremble. We don't tremble in fear. No, they're like, a, like dust. Now, these, these expressions are not minimizing the value of people. To say the nations are like a drop from a bucket isn't to speak carelessly about the individuals. Because the Bible speaks about God's care for you. This is talking about the nations as a whole. God's care for the individual, absolutely. I think it's very interesting, the analogy here, a little story in verse 16, uh, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel. Lebanon was well known in the ancient world for its big forests. It'd be kind of like talking about the, you know, the, the, the ever, all the evergreens in western Washington or um, you know, the redwoods in California. If you were to gather them all together and get all the animals in the territory, would that be a big enough offering thinking of offerings. Would that be a big enough offering to, to satisfy the wrath of a holy God against sin? He says, you know, well, you could, it's not about trees and animals. You can talk about a little, little campfire on a little speck in the universe. Seriously, people? No, no, not at all. Lebanon would not be enough. All its beasts enough? No. The nations are like a drop in a bucket. There was nothing before him. Then he looks at idol worship, and he, he kind of like... He's, he's, it's like he mocks that. Oh, so you made something out of silver or gold? Put it on your fireplace top there? You bow down to it? You paid $28 for that? Wow, that's really dumb. Or, or if you can't afford the $28, you're going to go out there and get a piece of wood from your, from your wood pile and have somebody carve it up, and you're going to carry this thing in and ask it to help you? You carried it in here. You drop it. You pick it up. You're going to ask this thing? Now, we quickly look at those things and say, well, we really don't do that. Okay, may I ask, what do you trust? What do you trust other than the living God? And if you're into trusting your portfolio, I don't know, there's a little volatility in the market. Are you secure because you have money in the bank or some investments? Is that, is that it? Good for what? Well, go ahead and invest. I'm just saying, that better not be your confidence. The stuff you've collected, the cool stuff you got, your nice house, nice car, got a good ride. Really? That's what you trust? Oh, have a car, have a house, invest, but trust Almighty God. See, that, that would be the message of the text. You worship what? You find confidence? You make your identity around what? Nonsense. Okay, now, if you look with me then at the second part that we read, you see the questions begin again in verses 21 and 22, and now our eyes are, are shifting away from the, the features of planet Earth to, to the universe, Wow. Uh, verse 20, uh, 26, lift up your eyes on high and see. So he's having us look at the scar- stars just like God asked Abraham, Genesis 15, to look at the stars. Count them if you can. So here, God says, I did count them. I do know how many there are. By the way, I have names for all of them. I, I kind of chuckle every time I hear that ridiculous ad. Maybe some of you have done it. No offense if you have. To, to have a star named after you for, what, $35 or something? You could have a star named after you. 
You know, Frank, there it is. You can, they'll tell you where it is for $35. You're never going to visit it someday, and no one will ever care. Uh, but be that as it may, you can name it. Guess what? I <laughs> hate to tell you, it already has a name. God just hasn't told you, and it's not Frank. He's got a name. He names every star. People sometimes ask, kids sometimes ask, how can all these people pray and God hears them? I mean, that's a lot of people talking. And I, I, boy, my answer would be this. There are far more stars in our galaxy alone than there are humans on this earth. Did you know that? How many, how many billion people on planet earth right now? What is it, seven, seven and a half? Okay, a few. God, who has no problem counting the stars and naming them, has no problem hearing the cry from your heart. He never gets your voice confused with somebody else's. He never says, who was that? The guy on the left. Hey, Gabriel? He never does that. He knows. He knows. Every cry from the human heart, he knows. The eyes of the Lord, the the psalm writer said, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth, but the Lord hears the cry of his people. See, wow, that's really, really good. So stars, this is instructive to us. God comforts us with his greatness and his power. Now, a couple more things under this heading. My second bullet point, I want to press on this for just a moment. Um, We see here in this text that contrary to what I would call pagan religions or non-Christian religions, God is the creator, but he is not part of his creation. And that idea sometimes sneaks in, the idea that God is in things, okay? Uh, God is in the trees, or God is in the rocks, or God is in the ocean. And a biblical worldview would be, no, hold on, God is not in those things. He made them, but he is not in them. That would be pantheism or more properly, perhaps panentheism, which is also a category of, in world religions, pantheism, panentheism. No, biblical worldview is no, God is not in them, he made them. There's a difference, a very important difference. So you wouldn't look at a mountain and say, well, God is in that. No, 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 he made it. He's not in it. And so here, there's a, there's a separation between God, what God created and him, and that's an important separation, so I think sometimes these things sneak in in, in what I'm going to say careless writing, even in Christian circles. Sometimes careless theology shows that, yeah, but that person is such a wonderful writer. Yep, study theology, please. Read your Bibles. Because even if it comes from a wonderful writer, you might have certain things sneak in that you go, wait, hold on, not quite true. It doesn't square with the Bible. No, God is above his creation. It's the stuff he made. He is not in that. He's not in it. If I bake a cake which would be rarely happen, um, but, but I'm not in it, okay? I promise, I promise. I might have made it, frosted it with chocolate. Don't say, well, that, Jay's kind of in there. No, <laughs> no, he's not. Uh, bad example. I didn't create it out of nothing, but God created, and he is not in his creation. He is above it. So please keep that straight. Now, I, I mention here the transcendence and the imminence of God. Both of these are played out in this text, and we'll see them in the next paragraph that we'll read very briefly. Uh, it's the one most well-known to you. The bigness of God and his nearness. The bigness of God and his nearness. And I want to I answer the question, why a correct view of God is essential. By a correct view of God in this text, I'm referring to understanding the balance between the importance of both the transcendence of God, his bigness, and his nearness. And, and please get this. If, you, if a person 
is out of balance in their thinking about, about God. You might think of God mainly about his bigness, his transcendence, and that will capture you, and it should. But if you, in your looking at the bigness of God, you forget about his nearness, you can see him as distant or uncaring or one who, who doesn't know the details of your life. You can be afraid of him in the wrong kind of fear. He's big and awesome and judges and things like that, but how could I draw near? So you're forgetting the other half, the the nearness of God. Now, if you flip that and you get out of balance the other way and all you look at is the nearness of God to you and you forget his transcendence, then you have God as a big buddy. You come in prayer and you say, yo, God, yo, God, probably not on the pages of scripture, you see, because in the Bible you have the transcendence of God and and his nearness in balance, So I I resonate with the idea that God is indeed our father, as Jesus taught, as Paul taught, Abba, we cry out, Abba, Father, but we do so in reverence and respect. That's what I'm wanting to preserve. One of my uh, Hebrew teachers many years ago, Ron Allen, really pressed on this. It was during the day when uh, when talking about God as Daddy God and Papa God was surfacing everywhere, and those are not improper things. I don't mean to press back in, in over too much on this, you understand. But if they're out of balance, it can be that. A God who is so near that you forget to say, dear father, awesome God, that you forget that. And you waltz into his presence. Oh, come with boldness. Yes, indeed. But come before holy God, righteous father. Ron Allen liked to, to think of it that way. Not just daddy God. He would say, uh, uh, dear father, that was, that was his preferred way of speaking of God as your father. Dear father, not just yo daddy. You understand what I'm pushing against here? It is a correct biblical balance of transcendence. He is big and awesome and powerful. He spoke the worlds into existence. Yes, and he knows you and he loves you and he bids you come near. Both of those help us have a good view of God. So dangerous if we have an incorrect view of God. Well, a lot of that. May I just say, if you want more on that, Michael Reeves' book, which is called, um, there it is, Rejoice and Tremble. (laughs) He has chapters on exactly these things. One chapter, being overwhelmed by your creator. And his very next chapter, being overwhelmed by the Father. And he would say, both of these are needed for your spiritual health. Okay? Something to think about. That's, That's good theology. I want to move to that third section. Don't, don't overlook, uh, don't forget to read my third bullet point there, please. Moving on to those, the last paragraph for just a couple of moments, 27 to 31, as I read, and then a couple of comments. Uh, we read this then. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is dis- disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. For good reason, God's people have loved these verses, put them to song, put them on posters, bulletin boards, statues, wings like eagles. Good reason. 
good verses for you to memorize and think about and to treasure in your own heart. When I think about verse 27, it is far too easy to think about this as something other people would say, certainly not me, but it's true of me as it is of you. How many times have you honestly said from your heart, my way is hidden from the Lord, and I think the New American said, the justice do me escapes the notice of my God. My rights have been trampled on. How many of us at times have said, God, do you even see? In moments of honestness, honesty before God. God, do you even see? I mean, I've been praying about this and asking, and here it is, and it's still there. I mean, my way is clearly hidden from the Lord because he has done nothing to help. And don't tell me you haven't thought that at some point. And so here, he calls it out. Why do you say this, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, God doesn't see And then he reminds us, he corrects us by reminding us what God is like. Do you think he ever gets tired? Has God ever been weary? Has he ever been less than wise? No, no, and no. You and I, at the end of the day, are exhausted and need to rest. We shut our eyes. God never needs a nap. He's never on a slow ebb. He never has Monday mornings like you do. You know what I mean? No, he's never weary, never tired. I can come before him in confidence. I can live before him in confidence. There are descriptors here of me and you that is faint, weary, uh, the ones with no might, falling exhausted. Those are descriptors of you and me, but not of God, the everlasting God, as we sang earlier, the creator. He has power to give, power to give because he, he never runs out. No, this is a call to hold on to God and, as we see in verse 31, to wait for the Lord. I have a a note here, uh, my third bullet point, please, to I'm quoting an Old Testament scholar here. To wait on God is not simply to mark time. Rather, it is to live in confident expectation of his action on our behalf. And my little descriptor note, to put it in other languages, if your foot is tapping anxiously as you wait, you're not waiting in the biblical sense. If you're tapping your watch and saying, okay, God, time, fix it now, you're probably not waiting in the biblical sense. To wait on the Lord means to rest it, listen, to rest it with him for his action and his timing. And at the same time that you rest with him to know a peace in your heart that he has it. See, to wait. To wait is not just to say, well, it's been 30 days or six months or a year. This problem should have gone away by now. Oh, no. Those who wait on the Lord gain new strength. And that's not a toe-tapping wait, an impatient wait. It's, Lord, teach me to wait for you with patience. Wow. I mentioned here, wait, rest, and trust, closely connected. Now, my, down there at the bottom, responding to God's word, I've I, I said enough, I think, on the first one already but I just remind you again of where we were at a bit earlier, looking at John's gospel, remembering this together. Isaiah, of course, makes us wonder how a transcendent God can come near, and the answer is in the person of Jesus. That's how he comes. It's like like God with skin on, so to speak, okay? Um, God draws near in the person of Jesus, God in the flesh who went to the cross for your sin, rose from the dead, coming again, God draws near in the person of Jesus. I hope um, that this text will give you a bigger view of God. Trustworthy. Holy. 
seated on the throne of heaven, and as nation moves against nation, God is not anxious. God is not up from his throne, pacing back and forth, calling out to the angels, we better do something. God does not have a war room where he asks for advice from the generals. He is seated on the throne. Don't forget it. Stand with me, please. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the confidence that this text gives to us, not confidence in ourselves, not confidence in human history, confidence in you, because you're the one who spoke those stars into space, and you hold them there by your great power. Father, you are trustworthy with the details of our lives. We have a lot of details. Sometimes we're kind of complicated, it feels like. But I thank you that you know, and you see, and you're trustworthy, and you care, and you're present, and you heal Oh, Father, thank you for being all of that to us, a God who saves. Encourage us this week. Encourage us in you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.